Well, good morning, listeners. Welcome to my fifth segment in this apologetics series that I'm running through. I'm going to be tackling two verses today or two passages today that have actually been kind of on my radar for the last week or two and have actually been a um, a source of some of the <clears throat> some of my discussions recently with several people. And um, before I even get into that, I want to get into even just two passages just before this. Uh, because here's, here's the reality of things. If I wanted to isolate scriptures, I could make the word of God say what I wanted it to. And that's just something that people have done for centuries upon centuries, whether you can talk about it in Protestantism, you can talk about it in Catholicism, you can talk about it with the Nicolaitans that Jesus says, I hate their works because they were taking aspects of Christianity but combining it with what they wanted and sensuality. They were double-minded and I hated it. I don't tolerate that. I can take a certain passage and I could just read it and I could say, see, this is what it says. But if I don't combine it with other passages, then I lose the beauty of what God is actually truly instructing us. And it's difficult for me to ascertain or to discern what is truth and what might be just a part truth. And here's what I mean by this. Let me give you an illustration. In Matthew 2, verse 8, this is what it says. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying... Go and search diligently for the child. And when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. Now the person who's speaking here, who's sending these wise men to go find this baby Jesus, is Herod. And if I were to just take what this says, then I would have to come away with, Herod is a worshiper. Herod is somebody who wants this baby Jesus into his court so that he might worship him. But if I keep reading... And I incorporate this other passage into the equation. Now all of a sudden the truth is unlocked into who Herod really is. Verse 13. Now when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt. And you remain there until I tell you, for Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. Now all of a sudden this takes on a new light. Is because now I've taken something that on the surface I could read that verse and I could come away with this concept of thinking Herod is absolutely a worshiper of God. And he wants this Jesus to be found and brought to him so that he might worship him because he understands and recognizes who he is. But if I take the fullness of the text, then I understand a little bit more and I have discernment into the situation. And the two verses that we're going to talk about are no different today. 1 John chapter 2, verse 19. It's a verse that recently I've had to um, try to break down. But here's the problem oftentimes of breaking down and bringing new light and new concepts to people who've been indoctrinated into lies and to distortions. It's almost impossible to do. It takes an act of the Spirit of God. It's the pervenient awakening that, that God will do in our hearts and our minds when we've chosen to say, I'm going to humble myself to the authority of God's word. And he alone, I believe, is the one who can purge indoctrinations from us and give us the light and the understanding of the passage. And so in this passage, it might be one that you have heard many times, uh, but here's what it says. They went out from us. But they were not of us, for if they had been of us, they would have continued with us, but they went out that it might become plain that they are all not of us. 
Now, oftentimes, this is a passage that is used to reference people who say that they had a profession of Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord of their life, and maybe they lived that way for a little while, and they they did the thing, they showed a little bit of interest, and they showed a little bit of commitment, but in the end, they just kind of ended up fizzling out. And they ended up, you know, going to the ways of the world, and they didn't really have anything more to do with Christ. And most times, this is a verse that is referenced to say, well, they never were really saved. Because if they had been saved, then they would have continued to just follow Jesus all the way to the end. Because this is what 1 John 2 verse 19 says. Well, let me, let me back up and get some context in the passage and read verse 18. Here's what he says. Children, it is the last hour... And as you have heard that Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. Therefore, we know that it is the last hour. They went out from us. Who do you think they is in the context of the passage? Well, there's only one group of people that's mentioned. It's the spirits of the Antichrist. Many Antichrists have come. Many people who have crept into the church have come. It's not people. It's not, this is not referencing people who never. Um, I'm sorry. This is not referencing people who thought that they had a, that they were saved. This is referencing specifically the spirits of the Antichrist that creep into the church in order to destroy the church from within. The context has nothing to do with. A genuine believer, a not genuine believer, in the sense that somebody thought that they had given their life to Christ, they committed their way for a little bit and then fell away. This is referencing something that's intentional by the enemy to sow um, deception into the church in order to destroy the church. Now I'm going to read a couple passages. One is going to be in Luke 20, and I'm going to try to refrain from flipping pages in the Bible um, and try to do it on my phone so it's not picking it up on the mic. But in Luke 20, 19 through 20, here's what he says. The scribes and the chief priests sought to lay hands on him, meaning Jesus, at that very hour. For they perceived that he had told this parable against them, but they feared the people. So, so here we have this problem. The scribes and the chief priests, they didn't want Jesus to continue to go on. So what did they try to do? We're going to find out what they did. But they have a problem. They feared the people. They couldn't just so easily just go grab Jesus and do what they wanted to with him, destroy him, kill him, whatever you want to you know, stone him outside the city gates. They couldn't do that because they feared the people. So they had to do it subtly. They had to do it secretly. Here's what they chose to do. So they watched him and sent spies who pretended to be sincere that they might catch him in something he said so as to deliver him up to the authority and jurisdiction of the governor. You see, these... These scribes and the chief priests, they said, you know what? We're going to take a page out of Satan's book here. And we're going to send spies who are going to secretly pretend to really be engaged in what he wants. But their entire intent is to try to destroy. Galatians chapter 2, 4-5 through says a very similar thing. This is a, a thread throughout all of scripture. I'm going to even take you back to the Old Testament. We're going to find the exact correlation back in the Old Testament. Galatians chapter 2, 4 through 5. Yet because of false brothers secretly brought in who slipped in to spy out our freedom that we have in Christ Jesus so that they might bring us into slavery, to them we did not yield in submission even for a moment so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. 
What Paul's referencing here is people who try to sneak in to try to spy out the freedom that they have in Christ, but all in an attempt to bring people back into the bondage of Judaism, of to um, being servants and submissive to the law of Moses. And he says, they did it secretly. Their whole intent was to come in and destroy it from within. And this is what 1 John 2.19 is talking about. Don't get it confused. Is it a reality that there's some people out there who think that they are saved, but they're really not? Absolutely. But that's not the context of what 1 John 2.19 is talking about. So we've got to use it within the context. It is about the spirits of the Antichrist that are being crept, that are creeping into the church, trying to destroy the church from within. First John, or I'm sorry, First Kings chapter 22, 13 through 23. I'm not going to read the entire thing. I want you to really hone in on 21 through 23. So essentially, Micaiah is, this, is the prophet of the Lord, and he's one of the only ones. There's many prophets who claim to be prophets of the Lord, and Ahab is seeking the prophets to be able to tell him what he needs to do. Do I need to go up to battle, or do I, do I not? And all the prophets are telling him, go to battle and you'll succeed, for God is with you. And he says, wait a second, there's one prophet who never speaks anything good about me. Bring that guy in, Micaiah. So they bring Micaiah in. And Micaiah essentially tells him, hey, I'm going to tell you what the Lord says. And the Lord says, you're not going to win. It's not going to be good for you. He's not with you. And he's like, see, I told you. And then it, it, it like kind of gives this little split screen type scenario in which all of a sudden we kind of find ourselves in the heavenly places. And here's what he talks about, starting in verse 19. And Micaiah said, Therefore hear the word of the Lord. I saw the Lord sitting on his throne, and all the hosts of heaven standing beside him in his right hand and on his left. And the Lord said, Who will entice Ahab, that he may go up and fall at Ramoth-Gilead? And one said one thing, and another said another. And here's what I want you to focus on. Then a spirit came forward and stood before the Lord, saying, I will entice him. And the Lord said to him, by what means? And he said, I will go out and will be a lying spirit in the mouth of his prophets. And he said, you are to entice him and you shall succeed. Go out and do so. It says, now behold, the Lord has put a lying spirit in the mouth of all of your prophets. All these your prophets, the Lord has declared disaster for you. So you see the exact same scenario playing out from what 1 John 2 is about. As I said... Is it a truth that there will be people who think that they're saved, but they really weren't? Absolutely. Is it a truth that there will be people who walk the walk for a little while and then fall away and they weren't really saved? Absolutely. But the context of this passage needs to stay within the context of how we use it. This is not a contextual passage to validate those aspects. It is a contextual passage to validate the fact that this is a warning to believers to make sure that you are watching out for the spirit of the Antichrist that will seek to creep in and destroy from within. Bringing lies, bringing falsities unto the stage. This is what he talks about in 1 Timothy chapter 4 verse 1 where he says, The Spirit expressly says that in the latter times some will depart from the faith. How? By devoting themselves to deceitful to, the, to um, the teachings of demons. Same exact thing. Some will depart from the faith. And how are they going to be lured and enticed away? By the teachings of demons. The spirits that have crept in. That are teaching lies and falsities. Causing people who might very well be genuine believers. To depart from the faith. 
This is what he talks about in 2 Corinthians chapter 11. I don't remember what the verse is, but go read all of 2 Corinthians 11. It'll be good for you. But he says that Satan will disguise himself as an angel of light and his servants will disguise themselves as servants of righteousness. You see, it's the enemy's tactic to creep in from within to try to destroy. It's always been to masquerade, to disguise himself so that those who are infants in Christ will be none the wiser. Why do I say specifically infants in Christ? Because an infant in Christ is the one who's still of the flesh. 1 Corinthians 3, 1-3 says that you can have an infant who is in the position of Jesus Christ, but they're still of the flesh. They have not matured. They're still on milk, which is the warning to what Hebrews 5, 11-14 talks about. He says, I want to tell you so much more, but you've become dull of hearing. He's talking to believers. And he says, the one who is unskilled in discernment of knowing good from evil is the one who lives on milk. He's content with just milk. He doesn't want to mature, doesn't want to grow on, onto the meat. And he says, you might be in Christ, but man, when you want to just remain an infant, you're susceptible to the enemy's ploys. This is why Paul talks about it even in the same um, is it 2 Corinthians 11 or is it 2 Corinthians 10? Now I don't remember which one it is. I think it's 10. No, I think it's 11. Um, I'm going to find out for just a second. 2 Corinthians 11, yeah. I wish you would bear with me in a little foolishness. Do bear with me, for I feel a divine jealousy for you since I betrothed you to one husband to present you as a pure virgin to Christ. Paul says, when I came to you, my whole aim was to present you as a pure virgin unto Christ. He says this, but I'm afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, your thoughts will be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. For if someone comes and proclaims another Jesus than the one we proclaimed, or if you receive a different spirit, meaning if you are tolerating and accepting a different spirit from the one you received, this means that they have the spirit of God. That they have received the Spirit of God. They have accepted the Spirit of God. They have submitted their lives under the Lordship of Jesus Christ. And He has bestowed on them the promised Holy Spirit. And He says, and it is very possible for you to tolerate or to accept the Spirit that does not belong to God. A lying spirit, if you will, in the mouth of the false prophets. He says, you've put up with it readily enough. You need to stop doing it. You might have a sincere and pure devotion to Christ, but Satan is seeking to steal, kill, and destroy so you might be a genuine believer and you might be led astray by false teachings. And this is Satan's aim. Let me ask you something. This, If it was impossible for him to steal, kill, and destroy anything, then why does he even try? If it was impossible for him to take anything from us as, as true, genuine believers, then why does he even try? And I can tell you, it is not just to try to um, make us ineffective. That's not the only reason that he does it. It's because he can, if we let him. That what 1 Peter 5 is all about. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing the same kinds of trials and sufferings are happening all across the world to your brothers. And after you have suffered a little while, then God will exalt and restore and confirm and strengthen you. But if you catch what he says right before it, he says that Satan is prowling around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Resist him firm in your faith. It is a command and a charge that we have been given that we have to put on the whole armor of God in order to stand against the schemes of the devil. Here's the thing. If you're not putting that armor on and you're just remaining an infant, then you're going to be susceptible to his attacks. 
those fiery darts will penetrate if you're not putting on that shield of faith. If you're not putting on the breastplate of righteousness. If you're not doing what you need to be doing, then you are susceptible to his attacks. And so please don't use 1 John 2.19 to mean something that it doesn't actually mean. Is it a reality? Yes. But 1 John 2 is not proving that reality. We've got to start using it for what it was intended for. And it was not intended for just using it for somebody who wasn't really of the faith. But they thought they were and they just kind of walked away. This is referencing somebody who is the spirit of the Antichrist that wants to destroy the church and all the glory of God from within. That is the context of this passage. It has nothing to do with someone thinking that they're saved, but a working of the spirit of the Antichrist. So let's use the passage as it's contextually supposed to be applied. The next one we're going to talk about is along the same ideology in John chapter 10, 27 through 29, a very famous passage, and there's a lot of beauty in this passage. And again, it's another passage that if I just read it on the surface, just for what it says, as it says it, then I would probably come away with some um, very concrete and um, definitive beliefs on what this says. But I'm not going to necessarily try... And challenge what some of these things are. Because there's a lot of truth to what John 10, 27-29 says. What I'm going to try to attempt to do. And may the Spirit lead me and guide me in this. Is to bring question into is it the fullness application of understanding this passage. Here's what it says. In John chapter 10, 27 through 29, and you could really even include 30 because that's contextual to it as well and very important for it as well. My sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. Now, I say that that last verse in verse 30 is important because essentially what Jesus is saying here is that no one can snatch them out of the Father's hand. Why? Because Jesus is in the Father. That Jesus is one with the Father. So therefore, it's kind of like those Chinese dolls that you have a doll and then you crack open the top and then you have another doll inside of it looks exactly the same. They crack open the top and then you, and you just keep going, right? So there's this tiny little doll that looks just like the bigger one. That's kind of what Jesus is stating here, is that Jesus is in the Father. He's one with the Father. And we, as his sheep, are in him. So if I'm in Jesus, and Jesus is in the Father, and nothing can take Jesus from the Father's hands, if you will, then nothing can take me from the Father's hands. But here's the question. It's all about my position. Am I in Christ Or am I not in Christ? And that's a very key thing that we need to unpack in all of this. But before I get to that, let's go back and look at some things here. One, 27 deals with this. And I want you to, to pay very close attention to this. 27 deals with the internal privilege that we have been given. Now, a lot of people would look at this and they would say, Oh, no, no, no. This is what it says, that my sheep hear my voice. Excuse me, sorry, I took a drink. My sheep hear my voice. Okay? Let me ask you a question. When you pray to God, do you always hear his voice? 
You're just giving an honest answer on that. I can tell you I don't. There's been very clear times that I hear his voice. But this doesn't say that my sheep, um, they mostly hear my voice. It says they hear my voice. Do you always hear his voice when you pray? Are there times in which God basically is not speaking and you have to make a decision based off of, of the leading and the prompting of the Holy Spirit in accordance with the word of God? What's fascinating to me is that we talk about this, that they hear his voice, but how, um, how many times in the churches of Revelation that Jesus is literally speaking to these seven churches, and by the way, Jesus knows those who are his, and it says that he's speaking to them. And he says, he who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. You see, just being able to hear his voice is not exactly what this is stating. This is simply saying that I have the ability and the privilege to hear, but I have got to be in line. I've got to be doing what I need to be doing. I've got to make, make sure my ears are attentive to his voice. And I hope that that makes sense to you because this is going to be a passage that I'm going to unpack in which I believe is an internal privilege of being in Christ. It's not that we always hear his voice. It's not that we always follow him. It's that we have the privilege and the ability given to us in Christ to do those things. Because here's the reality. To follow, to follow is the word akalotheo. And it means to accompany alongside, to be on the same path, to keep in step with someone. Obviously, this person being Jesus Christ. It means to put your footsteps where his footsteps go. Now, let me ask you this. Do you always do that? Do you always walk as Jesus walked? Because if you, if, if you say yes to that, then that would have to mean that you are sinless and perfect. Because Jesus never sinned. He never put his foot anywhere close to sin, if you will. But you and I, there's a very high chance, a high probability that you and I don't always keep our feet in step with his. And yet, this passage says, my sheep follow me. Akotheleo. They are on the same road as me. They're journeying right alongside me. As 1 John 2, 6, if anyone says that he abides in him, he ought to walk in the same way which he walked. Are you doing that? Because if you're not doing that, you're not his sheep. I can't stand it when I hear the end of Romans chapter 7 being stated as, well, you know what? Paul is just saying that, you know, uh, I'm just a sinner. Nothing good dwells in me. I'm just going to sin. The good that I want to do, I don't do. The bad that I don't want to do, I do do it. And, and I'm just going to be like this. Just my lot in life. Praise God that he delivers me from this through Jesus Christ. And, and, and I'm just going to serve the law of the flesh for the rest of my life until the end of the days. Well, let me tell you then. Then you're not his sheep. Because this says his sheep follow him. They keep in step with him. They tread on the same road that he's treading. They put their footsteps in the same place that Jesus put his footsteps. That's what the word means. It doesn't say they do their best, but they fail. It says they follow me. So you see the contradiction? If I'm going to say that, you know what? I'm not going to be like Jesus on this side of, of heaven. I'm going to stumble. I'm going to give in to these things. I'm going to do these things. Then you are admitting, if you use this passage, you are admitting that you're not really one of his sheep. 
You see how we can get into some really dangerous stuff if we don't combine the rest of the text? We can begin thinking that Herod was a worshiper of Jesus if we don't combine the rest of the text. Rather, again, I'm going to restate it. I believe this passage is stating not that we unequivocally and always hear His voice, not that we are always intimately known by God, because you know what? There are times where God will actually refrain from being intimately a friend with us. And you're like, no, no, that's heresy. You can't say that. James 4, 1 through 10, I would encourage you to go read it because it is talking about people who have the Spirit of God. That's why it says He yearns jealously of the Spirit that He's made to dwell in us. The only people who can commit adultery against God are people who are in covenant with Him. How are we in covenant with Him in this new covenant? Through the blood of Jesus Christ. It is impossible for James 4 to be referencing anyone other than a born-again believer. And you know what it says? Anyone, he says, you adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. He's talking to believers. So what are we going to do with that? Yes, it says he gives more grace. But if I understand grace as unmerited favor, then I lose the entire complexity of what that passage is stating. I miss the context. But if I understand grace, not as unmerited favor, but as divine influence of God's ability to overcome sin, then it makes all the more sense. Because what God is essentially stating through James, in James chapter 4, 1 through 10, is he says, you know what? You've jacked up. You've committed adultery against me. You are making yourself an enemy of God, which is the only person who can do that as a believer because I was born as an enemy of God. I walked as an enemy of God before coming to a relationship with Jesus Christ. Then I became a friend of God. But I have a responsibility to remain in that condition. Because James 4 says it is possible for a believer to become an enemy of God. He says, but he gives more grace. You've jacked up. But he will give you the divine influence of heaven to repent. And to change your course so that you can step back into right relationship with him. That's why he says, cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. He says, repent, and I'll bring you back to a right relationship, because right now, right now, you're not good with me. Even as he says in 1 Peter 3, 7, husbands, treat your wives with honor as the weaker vessel. Honor them as they're supposed to be honored. Show them that they have value as the, as the weaker vessel, so that your prayers may not be hindered. That's not just even hearing his voice. That's him hearing yours. So this passage that we unequivocally use to just say, well, you know what? If you're truly saved, this is what you're going to do. Let's bring it out to its conclusion with the rest of the text. Because if I'm going to say that, you know what? I'm just going to be a sinner saved by grace. I'll never be like Jesus. I'll never really be able to walk as Jesus walked. And I might try my best to do it, but I'm never going to do it. You just made yourself not a sheep. Well, I don't always hear his voice, but I mean, sometimes I do. Then you're not a sheep. Well, I'm always in an intimate relationship with God. He knows me. I know him. We're, we're good all the time because of the blood of Jesus. It's not anything to do with me. Well, then you're not one of his sheep because James 4 says otherwise. Rather, if we understand verse 27 as simply the internal privilege that we have through the blood of Jesus Christ. 
that I have the ability to hear him, the ability to know him and be known by him and the ability to follow him. Well, then this passage makes sense with the rest of the text. His sheep who have come into the fold through the blood of Jesus Christ, we get to hear him, we get to follow him, and we get to be known by him and to know him intimately. But the choice of how those three things play out in our life is up to us. And so it's a passage about ability and privilege. Not exclusive to that every person who is a sheep of Jesus Christ, with him being the shepherd, will do all three of these things unequivocally, unconditionally, at all times. Otherwise, the rest of the text doesn't make a whole lot of sense. Even Paul says that I press on to know him. He says, I want to grow in my intimacy with him. To be known by him and to know him. I want to grow in that. I want to grow in getting to... And you could say, well, that's what the passage is really saying. Is, it's that we're going to grow in those things. That's not what the passage says. It doesn't say they will, they will learn how to follow me. They will learn how to know me. They will learn how to hear my voice. It says they hear, they follow, and I know them. This is what it means. It's the internal privilege that we have. Now going on into 28 and 29, you're going to find the external promises that he gives to us. But they're not unconditional, unequivocally given to us. If I just read the passage, yes, I might come away with that. I might look at this and be like, I give them eternal life. They will not perish. But we have to bring in other passages of scripture. For one, in terms of keeping in step with him, Galatians 5.25. Why would Paul warn the believers here of making sure that they stay in step with the spirit if a true sheep just will? I mean, he's writing to true believers here. To the churches in Galatia as he's writing. I mean, that's how he starts it off, right? To the churches of Galatia, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age. He's talking to believers. That's the intended audience. He's not referencing people who's like, hey, you know what, I'm writing to the churches, but I know some of you probably really aren't saved. Let me just tell you something. Back then, with the persecution that was hidden for those who are in Christ, it isn't like it is today. Where people just try to encourage you to just pray a prayer and ask Jesus into your heart. And then you have this semblance of you never really submitted to him as Lord. You know how many times I hear that? People say that when they were like eight years old, they prayed a prayer. And they made Jesus their savior, but nobody ever told them that they had to bear a cross and die to themselves. You know what? Back then, they did. And they knew the cost. So it was very rare for have, to have somebody in the churches who actually did not genuinely confess Jesus Christ as Lord. Yes, were there spirits of Antichrist that spied in? Yes, absolutely. But I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about people who think that they're saved genuinely, but they're not. Those things didn't happen very much back then because of the persecution that was hidden. You knew it could cost you your life. You knew it could cost you your family. You knew it could cost you your job and your livelihood and everything that you know to be dear and true. You knew that surrendering to the person of Jesus Christ could cost you everything. So one of the reasons why the church is weak today is because we're not persecuted. At least here in America. 
But here's what he says in Galatians 5.25. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. Why would Paul even bring that up? Including himself in it, by the way. If it was unequivocal that if you're his sheep, you're just going to do it. Why would Paul in 1 Corinthians 9.27 say that I discipline my body and I keep it under control lest after preaching to others I myself would be disqualified? Disqualified from what? From what? Running the race. Now isn't that fascinating because Paul doesn't say you. He doesn't say we even. He says I. Singular pronoun that's used there to describe only Paul in that warning. And I'm going to go into 1 Corinthians 10 in just a little bit because I want us to see something. That just because you're his sheep does not mean that you will follow him. You have to choose to keep in step with him. This is again why I don't like it when somebody just quotes John 10, 27 through 29 and they do it in the semblance of saying, well, if you're his sheep, this is just what's going to happen. No, you have the ability to do it. But the choice remains on you because Paul himself says he could be disqualified from the race. Contextual to 24 through 26 of what he's stating. Do you not know that in a race all the, run, all the runners want, ah, all the runners run to receive, they do it to receive a prize? So run that you may obtain it. This is why he talks about 2 Timothy 4, 7 through 8, when he says, I kept the faith, I fought the fight, I finished the race. Henceforth there is laid for me the crown of righteousness. Which God will award to me and not only to me, but all those who have loved his appearing. He says, I had a race to run. And if I didn't discipline my body and keep it under, under submission, then I could be disqualified from the race. Does that mean that Paul wasn't truly a sheep? <gasps> I really hope he was because I'd base a lot of my doctrine off the 13 letters that he wrote. But Paul entertains the idea that, you know what, even as a sheep... I could be disqualified if I don't do my part. You see, when bringing the rest of Scripture into the context of the passage, all of a sudden we realize there's more to it. I can't just quote this one passage at the exclusion of all these other passages. I've got to make it fit. And hopefully, as we go through 27, we see these external promises that are given to us. We're going to see some of that stuff. He says this in verse 28. I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. What a beautiful promise that we have in this. But let's look at something real quick. I want to go to 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 8. He says, but do not overlook this one fact, beloved. Beloved is a term reserved for the church of Jesus Christ. Only one other time is it used in the New Testament for anyone else and is referencing the Jews in connection with the fact that God wants them to be saved through the blood of Jesus Christ. But if they continue in their course right now, that they wouldn't be. But they are still loved. But beloved is a term that is used primarily and exclusively, other than that one time, for the church of Jesus Christ. So we know the context of who he's writing to. Peter is writing this, and what he's about to address right here is directed towards the beloved. Now pay very attention, very close attention to this. But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you. Who's you? The beloved. Beloved. 
He's not referencing the world. He's not referencing people who are outside of of the church of Jesus Christ. He is referencing the church here. Beloved, he is patient towards you. The promises that he has presented to us will come to fruition in the appointed time. You might see it as a thousand days or as a thousand years. But to him, it's but a day. There is no time restraint for God. But to us, it might seem like, are his promises ever going to come? And he says, I want to remind you that God is going to be faithful to his end of the promises. He doesn't want any of you to perish. Right? That's what he has said. He says, my sheep who follow me, who hear my voice, and I know them and they know me, they will not perish. Why? Because they're in the position of Jesus Christ. And as long as they remain in that position, they will not perish. Listen to what he says here in chapter 3, verse 9. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. He's referencing the body. And what is he referencing? He says, you know what? My promise of eternal life has been given to you. And you have that promise in Jesus Christ. And nothing will snatch you out of my hand. Nothing external will snatch you from my hand. What he does not include in John 10 is an internal rebellion. He does not say that if you choose to walk away, that you still can't be snatched. He says, there is nothing that will be able to pry my fingers open externally and take you from me. This is the context of the passage. And in 2 Peter 3, he uses the exact same Greek word, apolumi is the Greek word, as he does in John 10, 28. He says, he is patient towards you, not wishing that any of you who belong to me should perish, but that you should reach repentance. He's not talking about the unsaved. He's talking about the saved. And this is key because the very next verse he says, But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. And then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness? This is why he says in verse 14, Therefore, beloved, since you are waiting for these, be diligent to be found by him without spot or blemish. You see, the context of the passage is, is God does not wish that any of his beloved would perish. Why is God even bringing this into the equation if he says in John 10, 26, or 27 through 29, that you never will? Why is he even warning the beloved You need to make sure that when he comes, it will come like a thief in the night. And you need to make sure that you are there and awake, as Luke 12 says, to open the door to him when he comes knocking. And that you are found by him without spot and without blemish. That you have a job to do in this. You have a job to fulfill in all of this. To make sure that in the end you don't perish, but that you are found in the position of Jesus Christ without spot. Or blemish. Look at what he says in Hebrews chapter 2. The author includes himself in this. And here's what he says. Therefore, meaning because Christ is more supreme than even the angels. He says, therefore, we. He's writing to believers. 
Therefore, we must pay closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable, meaning that those who rebelled against God got a just punishment. He says, for since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? He says, if I'm going to drift away from this salvation, I'm not proving myself not to be a sheep. I'm proving myself to be a rebellious sheep. And why do I think that because I just simply prayed a prayer and came into the position of Jesus Christ that I don't have a job to do? How arrogant and self-entitled that is. How shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? You see, the concept here, guys, is that we have the external promise But as Hebrews 10.36 says, we have need of endurance so that after we have done the will of God, we'll receive what is promised. There is a doing that that is required in order to receive what has been promised. And that doing is made possible. The internal privilege has been given to us through the person of Jesus Christ. The doing has been made possible because Jesus it's not because I'm good enough or because I'm strong enough or because I'm, I'm you know, smart enough in the Word of God and, and I pray enough. And I, No, it is because of the grace that enables us to do what God wants us to do. We have been empowered through His Holy Spirit in order to accomplish what God wants. But we have the choice as His sheep. Not just the privilege, but the choice to keep in step. With the Holy Spirit. To obey and to walk in line with the Holy Spirit. You know this word for perish is also the same word that's used in Matthew 5.29. And I think it's fascinating because I want you to see what Jesus tells us here. In Matthew 5.29 this is what he says. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And what's fascinating is you might be like, well, how does that fit? Well, what's interesting is that when he says, for it is better that you lose one of your members, or as the King James puts it, that one of your members should perish. Apolumi, the Greek word, than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. I find it fascinating because what is the warning that is given here? Is that if you're going to intentionally walk in some form of sin, man, you better eradicate All causes of that for your life. Because otherwise. You could venture down a very dangerous and eternal road. This is the warning that James 1, 13 through 15 talks about. Where it says when sin is conceived. I'm sorry. when, um, When it's conceived it gives birth to sin. And sin when it's fully grown brings forth death. In 1 John 5, this is one of those contradictions that I hear all the time in the church where people are like, oh, you know what? Somebody who's really born of God, they won't make a practice of sinning. They won't go off and do these things. They will repent. They will do these things. And and that's how we can know. But then they explain 1 John 5 in which it talks about there is sin that leads to death. I do not say that one should pray for that. All wrongdoing is sin. 
But there is a sin that leads to death. And you know what people use that as? People say, well, what he's saying there is that a, a true believer could actually make such a muck of their salvation that they could teeter on the verge of apostasy. I mean, they could be really doing some damage to the glory and the name of God. And so God in His love and mercy, because He's going to uphold His promise, that He's going to, he's going to kill me to spare me from apostasy. That's how great His love is towards me. And it's like, well, then which one is it? A true believer won't do those things or a true believer will? You see, even within 1 John, people have contradictions in their theology. The reality is in 1 John 3 when he says the person born of God does not make a practice of sinning. God's seed abides in him. He's not referencing post-salvation. He's referencing a person who before he got saved, before he came to know Jesus, before the Spirit of God came in him, that if he says he met Jesus, he will not keep on sinning in the same manner as before he knew It is not referencing a person who, after their salvation, 30 years down the road, will continue on in this. It's referencing a person who was sinning before they knew God through Jesus Christ and a person who kept on sinning, even though they've says that they have come to know Jesus Christ. It's the difference between the unregenerate man who has now become regenerate. And that distinction between the two. It is not referencing a point of regeneration all the way to the end to the point of regeneration. It's what the cross bridges between the unregenerate and the regenerate. And the regenerate man will feel the conviction of the sin that they once committed before knowing Jesus Christ and they will repent. But in no way does 1 John 3 say that a person who is born of Jesus Christ will not make a practice of sinning after their salvation. Because what do we always what do we already say that many people say about Romans seven? What does Hebrews chapter ten, twenty six through thirty one say, in which it clearly is referencing believers, and he very clearly says that a believer could make a practice of intentional sin, and there will be judgment for that. You see, all these things have to weigh in together. And my encouragement is that I want every scripture to have a seat at the table. To speak into our doctrine. To not exclude them and say, no, you've got your table over there and we're going to put you over there in the category of things we don't really understand or we don't agree with. So you stay over there and we'll just kind of talk about these ones that we do like. I call it the trail mix gospel in which we like to just say, I like this verse and I like this verse and I like this verse, but these verses over here, nobody really likes those little rice crackers. I mean, they're, they're bitter. They don't really add a whole lot of flavor that I like. So I'm just going to throw those things out. And I'm just going to stick with the M&Ms and the little peanuts and, and whatever your, your liking is on that. You grab what you want and you throw out what you don't. And that's how many people treat doctrine today. My urge is that I want us to bring in all the text. Because it all should fit. You know, I brought up 1 Corinthians 9, 27 earlier in which Paul addresses himself saying that he could be out of chemos. He could be disqualified from running the race. And then he goes into chapter 10 and he talks about the things that happened to the Israelites, God's people, that they were written down for our instruction. And listen to what he says. Now these things took place as examples for us that we might not desire evil as they did. Notice the we. Do not be idolaters as some of them were. 
as it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. We must not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did and 23,000 fell in a single day. We must not put Christ to the test as some of them did and were apolumi, destroyed by serpents. Nor grumble as some of them did and were apolumi by the destroyer. Now these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of ages has come. Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. That word for fall is the word pipto, and it means to fall from something above. He doesn't say that let anyone who thinks that he is saved take heed lest it become clear that he's not. He says, no, no, no. The person who's not going to take heed to these warnings will fall from an upward position. And I believe that's a very serious warning. This is why he then goes on to say in 14, Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. You see, Paul is including himself because we are now the people of God under this new covenant as the church. And he says the things that took place to Israel of what God would do to his people were written down as an instruction and an example for us so that we might not desire the same thing and receive the same outcome. Jude, verse 20-21. through 21. I'm just going to end with this one. Because again, guys, my whole intent on this it's not to discredit what John 10, 27 through 29 says. There's a lot of beautiful promises that are there for us. And there's a lot of beauty to that passage. But it must be weighed with the entirety of the text so that we might understand the passage. So my intent is to simply bring light. To shine some light of these other passages onto it so that we can gain a full understanding and not bask in half-truths. But in Jude... Starting in 20, he says this, But you, beloved, building yourselves up in your most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God. I don't know if there's a more profound verse out there because it is impossible to reason this one away. He is talking to the beloved. He's talking to those who have a holy faith. And he says it's your job to build yourselves up in that holy faith through the strength and the grace that God will supply to you to do it. Keep yourselves in the love of God. And so you might be a sheep. Maybe you're an infant. Maybe you're more mature. But the beauty of John 10, 27-29 is that we have received the internal privileges of getting the ability given to us access unto this grace to follow him as he asks us to follow. We have been given that through Jesus Christ in the person of Jesus Christ. So we can hear him, we can know him and be known by him and we have the ability to follow him. And we have the promise that nothing external can rip us from his, from his hand. But what we couple alongside of that is that we have to keep ourselves. We have to build up 
ourselves. We have to make sure that we utilize the treasure chest that God has given to us through the person of Jesus Christ to implement everything that He has given to us so that we might be a sheep that one day we will stand before Him and He'll say, Well done. Well done, my good and faithful servant. See, God's not patting Himself on the back on that. God's not saying, you know what, I kept you. I did it all. You know, you couldn't do anything because then that would be a work-based salvation. You can't do that. I mean, yeah, I mean, let's just throw aside James 2, 21 through 24. Let's just throw that aside. We are justified by faith. Works have nothing to do with it whatsoever, either pre or post. And we misconstrued what Romans is talking about, saying that no one can be justified from the law of Moses. You can't work yourself good enough into a position to where you justify yourselves. You have to have the person of Jesus Christ to find a justified state of being in the presence of God. Because he's the only way, the truth, and the life. But what James is talking about is not through the law of coming into Christ. But it's on that last day of our works, not proving our faith was genuine, but preserving our faith until the end. This is why he says, you see, a person is not justified, meaning in the end, by faith alone, but by works. And this is where Romans 2, 6 through 8 comes in as well, that he will render to each one according to his works. This is where Galatians 6, 7 through 10 comes in. You see, it's your works that are supplemented to your faith. That keeps you from being ineffective for the kingdom of God. Which is what 2 Peter 1 talks on. 1 Peter 1 actually and 2 Peter 1. And so the premise here guys is. We have been given the internal privileges in the person of Jesus Christ. The ability to follow him. To hear him. To know him and be known. And we have the external promises. That he says I will give you that eternal life. It's yours. I've promised it in Jesus Christ. And you will not perish in Jesus Christ. And nothing is going to take you from my hand. You are guarded by my power through faith. You're not just guarded by God's power. That's not the only thing that's involved in what 1 Peter 1.5 says. I believe that's the reference. You are not just guarded by His power. It is that you are guarded by His power through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed. You have a part to play in this. And you can choose to be a good sheep... Or you can choose to be a rebellious sheep and just try to cling to the promises that despite you, God's just going to give you those promises. No, you have need of endurance. So that after you have done the will of God, you will receive what is promised. Paul talks about that same thing to Timothy. In 1 Timothy chapter 4, 7-9, he says, Training yourself for godliness holds promise for this life and for the life to come. That means that you have to do something to hold the promises that God has given to us in Jesus Christ. And if you're not wanting to accept what these other scriptures say, and you're wanting to just reason them away because of the indoctrination that you might have received to say, no, 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 I don't like that. I'm going to challenge you. Because it says in 2 Timothy 2.15, do your best to present yourself as one approved before God. A worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. If you're going to choose to not handle his word correctly and truthfully, in accordance with what he has written, then you will not be approved before him. Because that's what the word says. 
So we need to take an honest look at some of these things and stop just reasoning away by isolating certain passages and saying, well, this is what the passage says, so I'm just going to believe that. Well, here's what all the other passages say. We've got to make sure that we incorporate them all, that every one of them has a seat at the table. And you all be blessed.